0: To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. You're listening to Taking Love to the Streets, a dialogue at the University of Toronto between Judy Rebick and Michael Stone, in which they explore the intersection between spiritual practice and political activism. Michael Stone is a psychotherapist, yoga teacher, Buddhist teacher, author and activist, committed to the integration of traditional teachings with contemporary, psychological and philosophical understanding. Judy Rebick is the author of Transforming Power, From the Personal to the Political, and was the founding publisher of Rabble.ca. She holds the CAW Sam Ginden Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Ryerson University.
1: You know, most people think of political activism as protests and organizing protests or lobbying. Um, usually you think of it in terms of organizing around an issue and fighting for that issue in various ways through demonstrations, through direct action, through lobbying, through media, through film maybe, and I think that's usually how I've defined political activism in my life. But over the last 10 years or so, I've started to think more in terms of a a, a more pluralistic notion of political activism. For example, people who are creating alternatives to the existing system, and they might not be doing that in a confrontational way, like, for example, the food alternative food systems. Uh, Very few of the ways that people organize around food is confrontational with power. And yet, the food movement has created probably the closest thing we have to an alternative system inside the system that exists and has had a big impact on the system that exists as well as creating alternatives to it. And I think the people involved in that are activists. I mean, the women's movement did have a notion of that. Creating alternatives was part of social change, but we saw it in connection to confrontational struggles. Um, You had to do both. And at some point in the 60s and the 70s, those two ideas separated. And I think what we're talking about today is that they're starting to come together again.
0: Uh, She just defined my definition of spirituality. (laughs) I'd like to start with a story, which is that, uh, of how I think about spirituality, which is that during the G20 protests, as many of you know now, because of so many uh, court documents that are being publicized by the media, but there were many, many people arrested uh, who were protesting, and uh, some people who were not even protesting, who were arrested in really brutal ways. And the next day, the police had prisoners, And thousands of people marched on the police station. And it was one of the most intense marches I've ever been in. I felt like we were just about to have a riot. So there were the police coming as fast as possible with riot gear. Uh, They had the water cannons that they just bought for... Do you know how much they paid for those? Anyways, the city's new water cannons. And uh, then, right in the midst of it all, in kind of the most intense encounter I've ever been in, Uh, Judy stands up on a speaker, basically yelling at someone so that she can speak to to the crowd. And Judy gets up there. I remember her wearing a green (laughs) t-shirt, sweating, with with someone holding a megaphone in front of her. And she said this was a space that she knew well because this is the space where she had helped create a struggle for women to be able to have an abortion or for uh, unions to have negotiating power. And then she turned the police to the police and talked about how the union that the police work with, she also worked for them to have rights as well. And then suddenly in this moment, Judy turned the whole scene and suddenly the protesters and the police were all in in the way that she spoke to the group. And it was really like a miracle. And (laughs) in that moment, I had a feeling that I was connected to a struggle and to something much greater than myself. And so my interest in spirituality is like a spectrum. On the one hand, I really feel like we need a very deep kind of solitude where in that solitude, we don't feel alone. And on the other end of the spectrum, I feel like we need to stretch ourselves so that we can be part of creative movements that are much bigger than just our narrow sense of ourselves. In a way, I think that activism and spirituality are both problematic terms, because we have an idea that an activist is just somebody in the street. And I hope uh, Judy will pick that apart a little bit tonight. And I think we have an idea that spirituality is just about turning inward and I think that we're living at a time where turning inward is important, but also it's not the only way to express spiritual practice, because we have to put our internal, private insights to work in a culture and in an environment that really, really need our attention.
1: Well, maybe I should talk a bit about how how I see what I did there, yeah, yeah. because it's quite different. I mean... It I mean, it's quite different what I was thinking I was doing, but I can see a perspective on it. Yeah. So I've been in a lot of, as you might know, a lot of confrontations in my life. I mean, mass confrontations and violent confrontations sometimes. And I arrived there with Naomi Klein, actually, and we we got there a bit early, so we went to go to the bathroom down at College Park, and there was a group of about 10 young people, very young people. And they were just sort of standing there, and they looked kind of nervous. So we said, are you here for the demo? And they said, yeah. And I so, so we said, so how come you're hanging down here? And they said, because we're we're scared, you know. Because when you came, you see, like, a line of cops um, protecting the police station. So I had that information, and then I went up and I saw the police. And the police, I could see the police were scared um, because there were really a lot of people, and they were all really really angry at the police, and I could see that they were frightened, that most of the police, especially the young ones, were frightened. And then, what started to happen was the sound system didn't work, which often happens at these things, and so a lot of time was going by, and people whose friends were in jail or who had just been in that horrible cage, we didn't know then how many people had been arrested. It turned out it was 1,100. We thought it was 350, which was more than enough, and people started to ye- yelling at the police, like stepping out of the crowd and yelling at the police, rage, the expressed rage. And time was going on, and I just knew that I had a, I, just, I knew I had the ability to change what was happening, and that I had to do it. So I just told David McNally, who's the MC, I, I was supposed to be the second, it's not like I stepped in, and I wasn't supposed to be a speaker. I was supposed to be a speaker, but you know, I was the second or third on the list. So I said to him, you have to let me speak now. And I got up, and I do this, you know, this is something, so you could comment on this, is this a spiritual thing, I don't know, but I just have an ability when I'm in a crowd, especially if it's a big crowd, the bigger the better, to feel the crowd. It's not the same as the individuals in the crowd, there is a feeling of the crowd. I, I would come to an event and think I was going to say one thing and stand up and say something completely different because... I have a communication with the crowd, and I used to say this to my Marxist friends, and they'd say, "Well, you know, it's just as if you went around and you in, and you interviewed people one by one, and you then you got all the information, and you're just doing that like quickly." And I said, "I don't think so. I think I'm actually feeling something. Right? I'm feeling something, and it informs me. I never really understood what that was, and I, I in my whole life." I'm Anyway, and so I just felt the crowd and I I thought, okay, I have to calm down the police and I have to get people to feel collective power, which is a joyous thing, not an angry thing. Well, first I got up on this speaker and, you know, I was 65 years old at the time and (laughs) these young men were like pushing me up to get up on this speaker. (laughs) Under other circumstances would have been quite humiliating, but nobody noticed in this one. And... uh, (laughs) And then I said, I just turned, the first thing I did was turn to the police and say, you know, I'm 65 years old, and if I can get up on this speaker, you guys can relax a little bit. And the older cops thought it was funny, and they laughed. And (laughs) that was the first thing. I spoke to the police before I spoke to the crowd. And then I said the thing about the the rights of the police is also due to protest. But what I thought, so it's interesting what you thought I was doing, bringing the whole group together, because I really didn't think of doing that. I was more trying to neutralize the danger, right? Mm -hmm. But then I realized that the crowd really wanted to feel their power because, of course, there were so much feelings of powerlessness in, in face of this military, you know, the Toronto that was a military, that they turned into a military zone. And so that was what I was doing, and I know how to do that because I've spoken at a million rallies in my life. And um, and the crowd was great, like you say. I've never... I have experienced an intense rally like that. Like the day they busted the Morgenthaler Clinic was like that. And, you know, the day that... A great rally is like that. And that's what I end on. A great rally is like that. Of all the demonstrations I've been to, most of them are just like, oh, you walk around, what do you want? But I really... <laughs> You know, it's, they're boring, really. But a great rally where something's at stake, and people feel that it's at stake, and they feel their connection to each other, and that cause is something transcendent. And you also feel it on a picket line, like in a strike, especially if there's an attempt to break the strike. You feel that, and it's transformative. Just like that moment was, that demonstration was transformative for people, because um, a lot of the people who came to that demonstration, the first demonstration in their life, they've been back at everything since, right? And so, uh, is that spiritual? I ask you because you're the expert on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the places
0: where thinking of it in terms of spiritual or in terms of activism is kind of passe. Oh. <laughs> Just in the sense that I think both traditions as active traditions, are really trying to find out what the truth is at this time. And, you know, one of the most dangerous ways, I think, we read spiritual traditions is one person at the center of it who had an insight that was somehow in a vacuum. And I think we love to take figures like the Buddha, and we like to extract them from their cultural context. But I think more and more, because we have maybe more honest academics, um, we're starting to see that the figures from the Axial Age are people who were not trying to start a religion. They were people who were trying to create a new kind of culture and a new kind of person with a more kind of collectivist imagination and also somebody that was in touch with something deeper than the way they habitually perceived their lives. And in that respect, when we think of somebody like the Buddha as someone totally engaged in the political and economic and social situation of his time, then I think those traditions can become more alive now. You know, think about the Buddha with 3,000 followers coming into a city. You have a political issue. You have an economic issue. However, they And one thing we're learning more and more, and one thing that's interesting is that the Buddha always taught just outside of cities, always just about half a kilometer away from cities. And I've always loved this, this kind of interest in being engaged with the city. And I think we have to pull those themes out of the way we think of spirituality, otherwise we get... What I think is a really outdated idea, which is the notion of personal transcendence. And I think, uh, you know, Judy described a scene at a protest that I see as a moment of transcendence. But it's a moment of getting bigger than oneself, not in an inflated or in an escapist sense, but connecting with something deeper than just uh, your personal narrative. Or from an activist perspective, kind of opening your eyes to something deeper than just your ideology. And I think what's interesting about activism in 2013 is we don't need a new ideology. That's not what we're looking for. In fact, it seems like what we're more interested in is small ideas and how they cluster together and how different groups can collaborate and um, share the wisdom of their traditions to affect a deeper kind of change in the culture. In other words, it's more about getting together and less about being right.
1: Well, it's just interesting because when you're talking about the Buddha and the, and the taking them out of cultural context and creating a kind of structure around it, structure around it. It's kind of what activists have done around ideology, right? Like ideology is also like a structure, right? Mm-hmm. So most of the European ideologies, right, left, or center, come from the beginning of capitalism, right? The emergence of capitalism, and that's true of Marxism, true of anarchism, true of, of liberalism. I mean liberalism in the bad sense of liberalism, <laughs> neoliberalism now, conservatism, all came from that same time when there was the emergence of a new economic system, a new political system, colonialism, a new social system in many ways and new ideologies to sort it out basically. And I think we're in a similar time now actually. I think we're in a similar time. A new axial age. (laughs) A new axial age?
0: What (laughs) does that mean? I don't know what that means. Well, the the time of the Buddha that I'm referring to, Mm -hmm. uh, which is also the time of Christ and Lao Tzu and Rabbi Hillel, scholars call this the axial age. Ah, okay. So maybe Ah. we're in a new
1: Maybe, Where we're, yeah.
0: we're, we're rethinking the whole idea of an individual that's going to get enlightened right. into something more collaborative.
1: Yeah. And I think that we, we have to rethink the idea of politics as the challenging of the state, right? The, the taking control of the state. Like the nation state was, the whole idea of the notion nation state formed just before that period, and the idea of democracy, right? As we have it, which is elected representatives and so on and so on and so forth. The idea of liberal democracy emerged, right? And we still have those ideas and we still live in a liberal democracy, but I think we have to rethink it in different ways so that it's much more horizontal, much much less representative and much more engaged so that democracy becomes much more engaged citizens, if we want to use that word, engage citizens, figuring out how to solve problems that affect them, rather than electing our betters, which is really where democracy came from, that you elect people who are better than you at making decisions and, and deciding on policy. So, and I think that's what we're seeing in the new movements, like, if we want to look at Occupy, that's the one I've looked at most closely, but it's true for all of them, is that um, instead of you know deciding this is the issue or that's the issue that we're going to organize around they, they decided to get together in a place and identify a problem which is inequality right mm-hmm. And um, by the way today also is a very important day because there was a hu- huge mass demonstrations of fast food workers for a rise raising the minimum wage today um, all over the states right And Obama made a about the economic inequality e- being the biggest issue facing the United States. It drives me crazy because people say to me, why did Occupy fail? And I say, Occupy did not fail. Right, what's happening now is because of Occupy. That is because of Occupy. And, but Occupy was different than other social movements we've seen. It's not as linear.
0: I mean, I think in the media, they focus so much on a physical space. They're in this park, right, you yeah, know. Yeah. But to me, it was more creating a space and a space where there was a possibility to have a conversation that wasn't happening. As a meditator, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how we're able to see flowing through awareness hundreds and hundreds of stories, most of them so repetitive, some good, but mostly not so creative. And in a way, one of the things we learn as meditators is to see stories as stories and not identify with those stories. And one thing that interests me a lot is how can you scale that up so that our society can also see the stories that we're caught in. Like, you know, most addictions at bottom are really an addiction to a narrative. And how can we see as a society where we're addicted to a narrative that we're repeating again and again? We know it's unsustainable, just like the addict going to the freezer for their ninth dessert. I know this is not good for me. One of the things I saw in Occupy was it seemed like the culture, it it was like a space opening up in the culture to recognize that the old stories were not working. And then there was this rush of the media and the media wanted two things. The first thing the media wanted was violence and we weren't giving giving it to them. That's when I saw that this was not a protest, but a movement. And the second thing, which is, I think, more important, is that the media really wanted to know, what are your demands? Does anybody remember this? They, they don't have, the have any demands, <laughs> you know? And in a way, in the organizing groups, one of the tensions and where, it, where we needed so much patience, and where I think we could have done a better job, actually, also, is, is really holding off on articulating demands. Firstly, because nobody knew how big it was going to get. And second... It reminded me of how a meditator, or any of us, when we let go of something, the ego or the storyteller comes in and wants a new story right away. Someone breaks up with you or dumps you, and you go straight to the bar to replace them. Uh, And we know how that ends, I think. Um, So what does it mean to have a kind of death of, of... cultural narrative without knowing yet what the new story is. And to me, that was the most interesting part of Occupy. And I don't know if you can talk about this too, but people who who came to that space often said there was something happening here that I can't articulate. Mm -hmm. And it was that space that was so different to me than any other kind of movement I've I've been a part of.
1: I think it's right that we're rejecting the old, you wanna call it a cultural narrative or political narrative or whatever, without having a new one. And I mean, question I get most when I speak, so what are we gonna do then? You know, Because I'll say, well, the old way doesn't work. And then I'll talk about some elements, like I do in my books. I talk about elements uh, that are emerging that are gonna, I think, produce ultimately new ways of doing things, art producing new ways of doing things, but there's no road, you know, and th- I don't think there ever will be a road the way that there was, because, you know, one of the reasons there was a road was because of colonialism, so the Europeans thought of this is the road, and then it was taken up in, coloni- in by cl- people who had been colonized and adapted to their culture, but nevertheless it was the same road. Part of the process here is to decolonize, which is a very deep and profound process because we're all a product of colonization. One of the things I'm learning and doing and working with indigenous people is that, you know, it's ending colonialism is not just about indigenous people. It's also about all of us who benefit from and who are created by, in a way, colonialism. But we don't know what what replaces that exactly, you know. Um, And it's, that's that's old. It's older than capitalism, right? Of course, there's patriarchy. We'll get into that, sure. Okay. (laughs) But the other part of a story is whose stories get told. And the other part of Occupy was storytelling, telling our stories. One of the things in Occupy this, I don't talk about the influence of the women's movement on Occupy, even though I come out of the women's movement in many ways a young woman called me from Occupy Wall Street and she was writing an article for Ms. Magazine on the influence of feminism in Occupy. And I said, well, I actually don't think other than the fact that there are a lot of women leaders which I think is an influence of feminism because 30 years ago there wouldn't have been women leaders. Or as many anyway. Um, I don't really see an influence of feminism. If anything, many of the ideas of feminism were absent in Occupy. And uh, she said, oh, I don't agree with you. Like, for example, consciousness raising. Consciousness raising groups, which were an innovation of feminism or the women, early women's movement, she said, Occupy is like one big consciousness raising group. Because what people did in Occupy it, was sit around and, ta- and talk to each other and tell their stories. And, you know, I was sitting next to a person, and when I was in Occupy Wall Street and we were all eat, you know, we all ate, and I was sitting next to somebody and we were talking, and it took a while to realize that this person was homeless because the person didn't need to ask me for anything, because we all had the same thing right there in that space, in that time. And then he started telling me a story, right? Well, that would never happen on the streets in Toronto, because that person is always asking you for something, and you're always trying to avoid giving it to them, usually, or give it it to them and get away. And so, Occupy, I think, yes, was saying, yeah, we can't We're not accepting the old narrative anymore, and we want to create a new one, and we don't know what it is. Um, We know what we don't like about the old top-down and a few other things. But the other part of it was we told each other our stories, and so that was very powerful. So Sheila Hetty is a close friend of mine. She's a novelist. Because of what I told her about Occupy Wall Street when she was in New York, she went down there, and she said, I don't know what it was, but my body just didn't want to leave. And a lot of people had that experience, particularly at Occupy Wall Street, but also at Occupy Toronto when it was working, mm-hmm. was it just felt so good to be there. And that, that feeling of good feeling was, I think, about people's, I guess what you would call interconnectedness, people's connections to each other, which were very, very strong there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a real community. And I think the space, and, and here I'll disagree with you, I think... Taking a space like that was necessary to create that feeling Mm -hmm. because we're so atomized and isolated in the cities that we live in. That taking a space and creating a space where everyone, literally everyone was included and welcome in the most amazing way Mm -hmm. um, was necessary to creating what was created. Because people are so cynical, they had to see something could be different to believe that it could be different. Mm -hmm. They had to experience it. See it on television and people did pick it up. Mm-hmm. Despite the media. <coughs>
0: And there are so many people who have values and stories that I think 20 years ago, people would have said, oh, that's the left. Mm -hmm. But those people don't associate with left-wing politics, or they're just not interested at all in electoral politics. And so it seems like that's also a new situation that's emerging. Yeah, well,
1: I saw that the first time I went to Hollyhock, which was about 10 years ago. Hollyhock is a retreat center, environmental retreat center, but it came out of the Esalen Movement originally in uh, B.C., and I was invited to speak there to environmental groups at a time, w- and then was went to a, a thing called uh, Media That Matters, and they did buses, you know, buses when you first have a conference, and you sort of, you know, go west, east, and But one was spiritual realist, he called it spiritual realist. So I was like at that realist end over there. My friend Velcro—I didn't know him then. When Velcro Ripper as a filmmaker was at that end, end. spiritual, the most spiritual end, you know. So I thought he was a real flake at the time. And uh, (laughs) until I saw his movie, and what I realized in the course of that weekend was that all these people that were in this meeting, very few of them were political in a way that I would have defined political. A lot of them were active on environmental issues, but many of them weren't active in that way, on any issues. They were artists or filmmakers or geeks, you know, there were a lot of geeks there. But they had the same values. They had the same values, but not only the same values as I did, but also the same vision of the kind of world they wanted to see as I did. But they didn't identify with the left and the way that Velcro <laughs> described it to me is he said, well, you know, I go to a meeting of the left and I think, do I really want to live in a world that these people are running? <laughs> <laughs> Which I could relate to. So um <laughs> so I started to think about that because um, I think that the left over the years has become more exclusionary, right? And so in other words, if you go to a left-wing meeting and you don't know the lingo, and this started to happen in the women's movement too... You don't know the lingo, and maybe you'll say something wrong, or people aren't really welcoming and friendly to you unless you're like on side. So if you get up at a left meeting and you ask a question that is maybe challenging the common knowledge in that room, you're going to be um, not very. People aren't going to be very friendly to you. And similarly, I'll raise this in spiritual circles. So for example, I go to this. I went to this conference. I forget what it's called, the, the one people, you know, we are one stuff. Anyway, it's a spiritual thing. And, you know, we are one in the world, right? So I went to a work, and I went because I was interested in one of the speakers. I can't remember now who it was.
0: Velcro Ripper?
1: No, no. <laughs> no, he wasn't speaking. It was um, Joanna Macy. Joanna Macy. Yeah. And um, so anyway, you know, I went, and then I went to a workshop. And I said, well, I agree we all want to be one. But, you know, there's racism and sexism and colonialism, and we're not all one um, just because we want to all be one. We have to deal with the differences amongst us. And I was literally shunned. I was shunned. No one would talk to me. Like, I don't know. They didn't turn their backs to me, but uh, spiritually they turned their backs to me, you know. So I think we have the same – there's the same problem in both groups, if you want to call it that, Mm -hmm. right? is this sort of intolerance for um, difference, right? Mm. Or for people who think differently. Or So in Hollyhock, I was able to challenge my own prejudices, I'd say. And those prejudices came from, you know, growing up in the 60s and the divisions between the New Age people and the political activists that took place at that time. And also because I was a Marxist and religion's the opiate of the people, right? That whole thing. So I was able to open my mind because of personal relationships that formed there, and start to see that not only these people had a lot in common with me, but they also knew a lot that I didn't know, and particularly how people change, right? How you can, individuals can change. And so I started to pay more attention, and then I got to know Velcro, so I learned a lot from him. But mm. how do we overcome that yeah, I guess it's intolerance. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but this unwillingness to open up to people who maybe have similar values but don't see the world the same way that we do.
0: Mm-hmm. I've been spending a lot of time lately learning about the intersection of meditation and neuroscience. So I, I've been very interested in this study that was just done where they took a uh, an app and they sent it to something like 25,000 people in 80 different countries, over 60 different occupational categories, and they asked you, so they they sent, you you download the app, and then uh, they buzz you, like you get a text or whatever, when you're tuning your guitar, (laughs) and they say, what are you doing right now? Are you paying attention? How engaged are you? And and you know, there's a graph, and you can like plot where you are, and then there was, the last question was, unhappy, happy. And what was really interesting is what they discovered was that 47% of the time, people are not actively engaged with what's right in front of them. They're mind-wandering. And the people who are mind-wandering also claim that at that moment, when that's what's happening, they're unhappy. So I don't know if you're good at math, but 47% is basically half. (laughs) So half the time we're not actively engaged in what's actually going on. Or another way of Mm -hmm. saying it is half the time we're thinking about something that's not actually happening. And so they've correlated this Mm -hmm. with research in fMRI machines where what they've discovered is is that when you are not engaged with what's happening, there's an area in your brain behind the prefrontal cortex right in the midline of your head that lights up called the default motor network. And the way the default motor network is, works is when it lights up, you're self-storying. In other words, when you're not paying attention to what's actually happening, you're telling a story about yourself. And that story about yourself, which is happening 50% of the time, is a story in the past or in the future which also um, leads to unhappiness. And that that's not the area of the brain that lights up when you're creative or in a deeper layer of imagination.
1: Or when you're in a rally that's working. Or in a rally that's <laughs> working.
0: And so what's interesting about that to me is that if we think of that... Collective